You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. Right, we're going on a cheese odyssey on a slice of cheese this week. We talked to the brilliant Chinese chef Andrew Wong, whose restaurant A Wong now has two Michelin stars, and his collaborator, the food anthropologist Mukta Das. They actually have their own interesting podcast called Exo Soust. Andrew and Mukta tell us about cheese in Chinese cuisine, which is something I knew very little about. From there, we travel to the Swiss Alps with Rachel Seals of Casa Swiss, who tells us how Switzerland's cheese-making history is rooted in its mountains. The wonderful chef Itamar Shulovich of Honey & Co talks about cheese in Middle Eastern cuisine and makes me very hungry in the process. He tells us how he enjoys cooking with it and using it. And Bronte Aurel of Scandinavian Kitchen transports us to Scandinavia and the whole fascinating world of Scandinavian cheese. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Well, two wonderful guests on my programme this morning. The Chinese chef Andrew Wong of the two Michelin star A Wong in London. And then his collaborator, Mukta Das, um, the food anthropologist. It's a sign of the way Andrew approaches cuisine, I think, that he works you know, closely with the food anthropologist to sort of us knowledge about Chinese cuisine. Um, good morning to you two. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Jenny. Andrew, I wanted to start with you because I'm always struck by the way, you know, not only are you producing absolutely delicious food, um, which I've been lucky enough to have eaten, but, but yes, you always seem to me to be sort of casting new light um, on the complexities and the history of, of Chinese cuisine. I was really interested in this idea that of cheese in Chinese cuisine. And I, I think lots of people think there isn't any cheese in Chinese cuisine. Is this a misconception? Well, you know, I think it's definitely a misconception. And, and actually, I'm, I'm probably as guilty as the general British public when there is this misconception that oh all, all Chinese are lactose intolerant you know we don't we don't eat anything dairy we don't eat milk we don't eat cheese um, and you know the Chinese you know lack the enzyme in the body um, in order to break down dairy products um, and you know even my grandparents sometimes they would they would discuss um, the inability to digest like large amounts of dairy. However, this does not mean that there is no dairy and no cheese and no milk and no cream in, in any Chinese cuisine. Um, you know, the, the, the ongoing message that we try to uh, tell our guests um, throughout the menus is the fact that China is a very large, China is a very large country. You know, it borders 14 different other countries and, and with 3000 years of, of gastronomic history, you know, there's a lot to take into account. Um, and and you know the cheese in Yunnan, the cheese in Guangdong. You know these are these are big parts of of those regional cuisines, um, and it's important um, not to forget them. Yeah, how fascinating! And so, Mukta, you you were doing research 
into this is, is have you, did you find sort of fascinating examples um you know historical examples of cheese in chinese cuisine were they different i know this is asking about such a huge subject but i was wondering if there were different examples of it being used historically then perhaps attitudes change uh, brilliant yes absolutely um so, I mean, a lot of scholars have done um, more and more food research on Chinese history. And uh, one particular scholar, Miranda Brown, I'll just name check her because she's brilliant. I think she's debunking a lot of the kind of uh, what Andrew describes as the kind of usual myths around um, cheese and Chinese cooking. Um, but sort of uh, uh, kind of piggybacking on her. Yes, I've done. I've looked into this um, and definitely there's um, a history, a very long history of uh, cheese making in in uh, in Chinese food history. Um, definitely from um, the kind of uh, Han period. So from 200 BC to 200 AD, there's a there's a sense that milk entered into and cheese entered into the Chinese culinary system. And in fact, this idea of um, milk and tofu being very different things. So tofu being a very heartland Chinese um, product and cheese being very much an ethnic other uh, coming from the borders of China and elsewhere. Like, uh, the, the, uh, there's a lot of work that looks at how actually the way that cheese was produced back in that time in sort of 200 AD helped produce sort of the kinds of tofu that we see now um, the sort of curd like tofu that we see now so actually there's a lot of kind of um, uh, work now to sort of see how cheese and tofu were linked within Chinese gastronomic circles so it's it's a really long period of history where we have cheese um, made in China and um, and you know cooked um, we, you know, historical records are pretty sparse, um, so there's an awful lot of holes in our understanding of Chinese food history. But definitely we see um, in court records in the Qing, um, so from about 1700, uh, 1800s, we see a lot of um, sort of palace cheese making, sort of fresh curds uh, being, um, uh, soft curds being cooked into various types of Chinese foods, congees, etc., um and um and yeah and and nowadays we we see a lot of regional cheeses come out um cheeses from sort of the tibetan autonomous region from um yunnan uh, where um a lot of um uh, ethnic minority communities have been producing cheese for many many decades some some centuries um using a variety of different milks um mm -hmm. sheep goat cows yak camel um and then, you know, the kinds of things that you would ask about cheese making, you know, you, you sort of see sort of standard ways of making cheese. You know, you, you find an animal source, an animal milk source. What do you do with that milk? Um, a lot of these milks, um, some of them are raw, some of them are heat treated. Um, and, you know, uh, what starter cultures do you use? Um, some of the more traditional uh, methods use, you know, uh, basically incubate the milk. Um, um, and uh, and allow the starter cultures that are natural, the sort of microbial content of the the, pail, the milk pails to do their work overnight, and then they'll add a coagulant. Rennet isn't very usual in Chinese yeah. cheese making in these traditional Chinese um, yeah. situations. Um, often they'll use other types of coagulant, vinegar, papaya, and water. I've seen mm. um, soured rice water, also very popular and quince water, different kinds of vinegar, um, to create that kind of uh, acidic um, coagulant um, look. And then 
often a lot of these cheeses are then fresh. So you don't get a lot of mature cheeses from this traditional sector of cheese making right. in Chinese culture. Um, a lot of these curds are then pressed and then made into a product, dried, um, cooked, stir fried, um, oh, gosh, uh, eaten with all sorts of things, uh, pulled into noodles in some cases, oh. um, so many different ways and versions of, of, of cooking with cheese in Chinese culture. It, it's, yeah, it is a big subject. <laughs> yes. Now, Andrew, as, as a chef, you know, is this really stimulating to you to sort of learn of this history? I mean, did you, did you know any of it? Or were you as surprised as, as I am? I was listening to what, uh, what was it, you know, was it fascinating for you to learn about this, this history? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing was learning about Yunnan. That was the starting point. And, um, you know, Yunnan is one of those areas that, you know, growing up, I I came from a Cantonese background. You know, my my grandmother was from Sichuan, but, you know, my main part of my family was from Guangdong. um, And then they moved to Hong Kong and then to the UK afterwards. So actually, my knowledge of Yunnan was, was pretty minimal. Um, and that was what, where the, the whole conversation started of, of finding out about Yunnan, researching a few dishes around the area. Um, and then it got onto this topic of, of what things are available in Yunnan. And, and those are very unique things, you know, whether you're talking about black truffle or you're talking about bananas. Um, and Mukta can tell you some incredible stories about the banana plantations in Yunnan. Um, or we're talking about this, this yak cheese that, that is the, the process is very, very similar to halloumi and it's very very similar to oaxaca in, in oh, south america and right. uh, the, the, the process is very very similar but the way it's used is, is quite unique and you know i i'm i'm always a big fan of of kind of looking at the the modern interpretations of using these products and so if you go to yunnan now they do this incredible thing where they they heat up the cheese and then they stretch it into a film um and then they deep fry that and then obviously being 2020 you put like nutella and jam um, and, and citron pepper salt and and that's the kind of stuff that really interests me on, on seeing the diachronic nature of, of cuisine and and how how it ultimately questions this whole ideology that people have that chinese cuisine is static you know you, i look at many cuisines over the past 20 30 years and they've all evolved yet when mm. people for the most part of, of the UK anyway, when people think of Chinese cuisine, they, they, they don't allow their minds to, to accept the understanding that Chinese food also needs to evolve. You know, it's evolved in China. Um, so why can't the interpretation of that cuisine evolve globally? And, and cheese is just one of those really interesting topics, which basically gets me to, to question my own uh, misconceptions sometimes about a part of my cuisine. Um, mm. You know, whether or not you're talking about this stretching or you're talking about stir frying with 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 different Yunnan bacons, um, or even if you talk about the kind of like the the the, the mozzarella esque um, cheese that you see in in Guangdong. You know, the fact that the majority of the world's buffalo are, are found in Guangdong, yet because there's no UNESCO kind of um, certification, nobody really talks about. Um, the buffaloes in Guangdong. And then you kind of realize that actually our whole gastronomic kind of arena sometimes isn't always determined by quality or creativity. Sometimes, you know, it, it's also subjected to the restraints of, of politics, of economics. Um, and I think this is why um, the work that uh, we do with Mukta is so interesting because it, it really makes you think outside the box of ju- not just being within the kitchen. You know, the kitchen is just a microcosm of, of a wider world and a wider set of parameters and a wider set of, of gastronomic um, understandings in, in, in 
the cuisine becoming what it is as a contemporary. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, cuisines are fascinating. I mean, as you're right, you know, they're alive, aren't they? And they evolve and people, you know, there's so many different pressures, aren't they? Social and political and environmental um, and patterns of, of consumption changing too. So can I just have you, with this research, have, have you that yourself then put cheese on the menu at A1? Yeah, yeah. So we, we when I first opened the restaurant, I just wanted to get cheese on. We basically marinated, I remember this when we first opened, we marinated uh, like halloumi-esque cheese and served it with citron pepper salt. But London wasn't quite ready eight years ago. And, and you know, I thought that all the, the work that and, and research that I had done, um, it would be translated well into the public arena. Um, and obviously people just ordered it and just said, what the hell is this? No, thank you. Um, and, but it's taken time, you know, it's taken time. It's taken nine years. Um, it's taken a lot of work from ourselves um, and, and Mukta in, in kind of um, putting information out there to our guests um, and the team constantly trying to get guests to um, step out of their comfort zones. And so now at the end of um, the tasting menus, uh, we offer cheese um, sat on one of my favorite Chinese snacks, which is the caramelized walnut. And the cheese that I've chosen for this particular dish isn't really a kind of Yunnan-esque cheese or a kind of Guangdong mozzarella-esque cheese, but it's the cheese that reminds me most of fermented bean curd and that really kind of contradictory, mellow, aggressive uh, mm-hmm. flavor profile where it kind of like it, it almost attacks the roof of your mouth um, with the umami hit. Um, and the cheese that we actually went with was an, an unpasteurized Stickleton. Um, and I, and I think that that to me is very close to fermented bean curd with the only difference being, I remember um, reading an article about this when they, they gave these cheeses to a set of Chinese chefs who had never tried cheese before. And they came up with a really interesting observation, which is basically when you eat fermented bean curd, the umami hit and the saltiness, it's like a hit. So it just kind of, it, it hits you and then it washes away very quickly. Whereas because obviously with, with cheese, there's a fat content in there, mm. it lingers in your mouth. And that was what um, was so strange to the Chinese chefs who'd oh. never eaten cheese before. But for me, I, I love the conversation that we get with guests when they eat this cheese and they go, oh, you know, because they've had fermented bean curd earlier on in the menu um, and right. in a sauce. And to yeah. give it to them at the end, you know, I mean, you know, but coming from um, a Western perspective, eating cheese at the end of a meal is 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 not a strange concept at yes, all. Exactly. But but having the added narrative of it being a cheese connected to fermented bean curd flavor wise, mm. I think that's um, I think it's a fascinating way to to end a Chinese meal, especially in 2021, where you know where guests are increasingly kind of curious about China. You know, guests want to know about Chinese history, about Chinese technique, about Chinese ingredients. Um, and it's just a, a nice little touch, I think, at the end of the menu. Yeah, brilliant. Now, Mokta, you know, we were talking about, you, you mentioned the, sort of the rise of regional cheesemaking. And things obviously, you know, have, are changing fast. Do you see, you know, is there uh, within China, is there sort of increased interest in cheese? What was it a sort of, see, you talked about the courts earlier. Was it a sort of an aristocratic food? And is it getting a, is it getting a new audience now? Is it becoming... I don't know what the trajectory was. Do you tell me? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a fascinating question, and and you're right. It is. It still is quite an elite food. It it always has been. Um, 
you know, uh, luxury centers in Jiangnan, for example, you know, that sort of eastern seaboard, uh, Shanghai region, you know, um, that's where a lot of people would have um, eaten cheese for the first time outside of the court system. So, you know, uh, and that was in the 11th century, pretty much like um, the Mediterranean port cities of that time as well, you know, really luxurious port cities would have been um, the key place to have uh, this kind of cheese. Um, so, you know, sort of the internal um, production of cheese was very much an elite production. And, you know, uh, I would still say that Chinese cheesemaking is very regional. It has its sort of regional markets. There's an awful lot of work done by the state now to um, recognize heritage uh, cheesemaking, um, sort of uh, historical cheesemaking. They have a geographical um, indication system mm. now. So um, the uh, cheese that Andrew was talking about, the Rubing, um, now I think they're that's recognized as a, a with a GI mark. And so people outside of uh, Yunnan can now buy it and know that this is produced in the kind of traditional methods. Um, so there's that going on and sort of talking about diachronism. <laughs> there's also um, the Chinese appetite for European cheeses. And so uh, just recently, the last couple of years, the EU and China have come to um, an agreement around marketing, um, you know, uh, European territorial cheeses, Italian cheeses, Greek cheeses. Oh. And so there's a huge market for, um, for this kind of territorial cheese. So uh, they're both happening at the same time, Jenny. You've got your, your Chinese traditional cheese making, which is starting to uh, get its profile raised. And you've got this huge appetite for uh, European cheeses, mature European cheeses. So the kind oh. of um, cheese that um, Andrew uses with his final course, that Stitchelton by Joe mm -hmm. Schneider and Adolf Holsten, that, you know, it's six months aged, it has a coat, you know, it's very different from the fresh cheeses we were just talking about um, from some of the Chinese regions. And so there's a, there's a growing appetite for this kind of um, mature, um, sort of deep, um, umami-esque coated uh, feeling in on the tongue with this uh, with the cheeses that are coming out um, into China from Europe. So it, it's a really fascinating time to be into cheese and Chinese food. <laughs> it's like there's a sweet spot <laughs> here. That's brilliant. Yes. Excellent. I mean, so Andrew, is cheese something that you enjoy yourself? As you know, as you know, as a person, <laughs> as not as a. I mean, always seems something as a chef that you enjoy cooking with too. Yeah, absolutely. I think cheese is a, is a, is a wonderful thing in the sense that it really is um it's one of those things where you taste and you're tasting like real artisanal history and, and real artisanal craftsmanship in its purest form i think that's what i i love about it it's it's like fermented bean curd it's like some of the salted uh, preserved vegetables that we use in in the kitchen it is an, a, one of those ultimate ingredients which exemplifies like family lineage in every mouthful which i i really like the romance of, of that just the same reason that you know we're with cognac or, or with, with wine. With regards to kind of the dishes, I've got to say, stir frying cheese, I haven't really got my head around yet. Yeah. Um, I was just, uh, I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you now there are many famous dishes. Um, and, you know, in all of they, they should work. You know, there's, you know, even if you have, you go to a Greek restaurant, for example, you'll see halloumi as part of a main Absolutely. course with, with a load of other yeah. savouries. And, and yeah. I, I would be equally probably as unkeen to order those dishes as I am in eating kind of stir-fried bacon with preserved vegetables with with Yunnan, uh, with Yunnan cheese. In the sense that my my culinary brain, a lot of the time, I automatically would go to something like um, tofu more or, or mm -hmm. to, like a firmer tofu than I would to 
to the cheese. But I think, again, that's that's probably a product of not using it as much. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that if I spent more time in Yunnan, I would, my palate would become more comfortable with it. Um, and I would, I would begin to use it more because actually the cheese in itself isn't particularly strong in flavor. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's no different to paneer um, in the sense paneer. that it, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's a great carrier of cuisine. But yeah. from a chef's perspective, I always think that tofu actually carries flavor better, um, oh. which is why uh, my, my kind of inkling is to go uh, towards tofu as opposed to cheese. But as I said, you know, like cooking in A Wong is it's uh, it's an evolving journey. You know, that what we cook today is, is going to be very different to what we cook next year, um, and a lot of the time it's an expression of of where I am, and and that in itself is a product of you know the restaurant evolving, but also the work that myself and Muk to do in in finding inspiration to. Uh, evolve the menu into different directions. You know, I love, I sort of love the curiosity that you have, you know, both of you have, and your interest, I think your deep interest in in Chinese food, in exploring it, in bringing its, you know, its original variations, all these different, you know, the history and, and the contemporary nature of it too. I, you know, absolutely love it. So, um, yeah, well, thank you so much for it. I so appreciate it because I know how busy you must both be. So, it was really wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. An absolute pleasure, Jenny. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop Enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me today Rachel Sills of Kaiser Swiss. And Rachel is a New Zealander who became sort of fascinated by Swiss cheese and imported it into Britain, which is where I've encountered it at Borough Market. I mean, really wonderful cheeses, Rachel, that I always make a beeline for your stall when I go to either Borough or Spa Terminus. Um, Thank good you. morning. Thank you. That's a nice, nice introduction. <laughs> well, it's true. Um, from the heart, years and years of eating your cheese. Um, and I was thinking Swiss cheese, perhaps you could tell us, Rachel, what are, when we think of Swiss cheese, we often think of cheese with holes in it. <laughs> So, and large, large cheeses with holes in it. Tell me, what are the sort of iconic Swiss cheeses? Well, I suppose that that brings you straight to Emmentaler, which is the classic 100 kilo cheese with holes in it, which has become even just known as Swiss in, in many countries, um, mm. and which is often copied. But the, the other ones probably next is Gruyere. And um, many people are familiar with raclette and Appenzeller and probably also uh, Tilsiter in some, some regions and Vacher and Fribourgeois. All delicious cheeses. I mean, isn't these huge cheeses? Was there a reason why that style of cheese, was that done by cooperatives coming together? Well, and yeah, it's. I mean, there's 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 a lot of talk about why say the Emmentaler is 100 kilos now because it used to be between anything from 10 to 40 kilos, 
And what's what's often said is that, and and it's true that um, Switzerland was exporting a lot to Russia at the in the time, and it was taxed per item as opposed to per kilo. So it made sense to produce something which was larger. That's very sad, isn't it? Economic a reasons. Tax, a tax dodge, basically. Yes, a way of exactly. getting around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, carrots. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. That's fascinating. And then, but now it's become part of the cheese. Are these cheese rules? Are they set in? Are they laid out legally in Switzerland? Yes, it is. But because Swiss has um, really adopted the AOP um, uh, way of operating and as a way of protecting their cheeses. And certainly Emmentaler, the size and uh, the nature of how it's made and, and the age of what, which it's um, sold is, is heavily controlled. Um, and I think it's worked in this instance in their favor where Emmentaler is something that's often copied by other countries. Well, in the favour of the Swiss version, then, because it's protecting yeah. copies. Yeah. Yeah, so that it's raw milk um, and right. it's it's not sold um, until it's reached a certain maturity. So there's good flavour development and um, that it's uh, the, the, the size and it's not square <laughs> and vacuum packed, um, which, which in this age of industrialisation and cheaper foods and quicker foods, um, is quite important to hold the, the value of the cheese. And what age would it be sold at in Emmentaler? Well, I mean, we, we per- I personally won't sell it until it's between nine and ten months. Um, but um, certainly you can sell it at five months old. Uh-huh. But if you compare that with a block vacuum-packed Emmentaler style from other countries, they're often selling it when it's three to four weeks old. Oh, much younger. Isn't that interesting? Yes, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about Swiss cheese, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the tradition of alpine cheeses, which you know, which seems so sort of um, at the at the heart, in a way, of Swiss cheese making. Can you could you tell us about that, that tradition, Rachel? I know yeah, this is, this is so close to my heart um, because. Because it's uh, it's it's actually the, a bit of the origin of, of Swiss cheese um, is the Alps because that's where the cheese was first made. It was, the cheese making didn't come down into the valleys um, until the late 18th, 19th centuries when there was a lot of sweatshops and people weren't keeping their own cows and making their own cheese. So it had to be more, well, not industrialised, but centralised, let's say, down in the valleys. So so the Alps really is where it, where it started. Um, although it started with, with goat and sheep's milk cheese, which seems unlikely now because Switzerland's such a cow's milk <laughs> utopia. Yeah. Um, I hadn't realised, yeah. But, but, you know, in the beginning, they were just making a sort of self-curdled, um, rennetless uh, sheep and goat's milk cheese. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the cows kind of came about, uh, I think, around the 14th, 15th century. And so there was, there was this now milk from cows and they started eating meat from cows, whereas pre that time, Swiss people were mainly eating uh, grains as their main sort of food source. Um, and then also religion comes into it because <laughs> you weren't allowed to have dairy products um, during Lent. So um, all these things sort of came together. And now we've got this fantastic sort of tradition of 
predominantly cow's milk, alpine cheeses. And um, this is a really uh, specific way of life for a lot of people. They spend their summers up on the Alps in their in a chalet, which either they own or they rent from the the um, local the gemeinde, the local council. Let's say um, they take their own cows up often, or sometimes they use other people's cows. They're there for this short period of time from May until September. Um, they go up once the snows recede enough so that they can actually get up there and there's enough grass. Mm. And they've got this life of um, early wake-ups, four in the morning often, uh, making cheese, looking after cattle and uh, looking after the land. And then in September, they come back down the mountain and take on often other jobs for the rest of the the year so it's quite a difficult life and and these chalets that these people are living in over the summer are you know it's a wood fire on the floor it's Mm. no washing machine it's no power it's a moment of having um even today not a lot of fresh food because they don't usually on some of the alps they don't come down very often during the season maybe only once or twice some are a bit closer to the to the villages. Um, so they're taking all their supplies up with them and their children. Um, and it's it's very hard work. And and in it, what is most beautiful, you've got this fabulous pasture, which is, mm. well, it's not really pasture as we know it. It's um, this array of sometimes up to 120 different types of plant growing. Yeah. And the cows are eating this. And as we know, you are what you eat. <laughs> so the milk is a product of of what comes from from the land and also from the work of the cheesemaker. Very special, amazing. very special. Very special, massive commitment. And so interesting to get that insight, you know, into, again, it's just so easy for me to go and, you know, casually buy a piece of alpine <laughs> cheese, alpage, you know, and just think, oh, that's, that's nice, mm, I like it. And then, you know, no sense. It's a commitment, isn't it? I mean, do they find it... Do this commitment to carrying on this tradition, is that because they, they believe in the quality of the cheese or because they, this tradition is precious to them, they want to maintain it? Is it all those, perhaps all those things? Well, in, in, in my sort of conversations with, um, with cheesemakers up there, um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're actually often typical of what you'd imagine as quite shy, um, quiet people. <laughs> <laughs> They, the thing that comes across and they say is they love the life. They feel um, so attached to the mountainous areas. Um, and for them, it's this waiting until they get a chance to go up into the mountains to spend the summer working. So it actually is, is a labor of love. And, and these people are not making a lot of money. This is the other thing to remember is, um, you know, cheese prices of for that sort of quality have been forced down over time. Um, and, and how much money can you make out of having 15 to 20 cows um, and making, you know, one or two cheeses a day? Mm. <laughs> so so there, it is a commitment to the life and to the tradition, I think. Fascinating. I wanted to ask you, Rachel, about cheese in Swiss cuisine because I'm just really interested in exploring not just cheese, but it's its role it plays within, you know, within a sort of food culture. Mm. Um, how, how is cheese 
eaten in, in Switzerland. I think I'm afraid the cliché that's coming immediately to my mind is a fondue. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, but that's sort of true. Tell, tell me what, what the reality is. Well, it is true. It is true. Um, they eat a lot of fondue. They eat a lot of raclette. Uh, oh. in, in, every, in every cheese business meeting I go to, whether it's visiting a family of you know, producers or a uh, maturing house supplier, 90% of the time we eat raclette or fondue after the ah. meeting or Tell during the meeting. Because I don't think everyone will know what raclette is. Tell us about raclette. So, so ra- raclette is basically grilled cheese um, on potatoes. But it's, mm. I mean, traditionally done with a, a, a round cheese, which is around five kilos in weight, cut in half, and then put against a fire until it starts to um, melt and sort of bubble and then scraped off alongside some boiled potatoes and some cornichon and, and little mini um, onions. And that's, that has um, turned into in 2021 where you have a table grill and you have all your people sat around the table. Everyone has um, a little uh, spade <laughs> which they put their piece of cheese on and you put it under the central grill and you melt it and then you um, put it next to your potatoes, which you have. And there's all these little kind of um, nuances where most Swiss people I see peel their potatoes while they're sitting at the table. You know, they have their potato on a fork and they've got a knife and they very clearly carefully take off the skin and and also, they always put the cheese next to the potatoes, not on the potatoes. <laughs> Although uh, yeah. I'm told that that's not always the case. Um, right. Oh, but, it's, but that and fondue, the thing that I like about it is it's a shared meal. Mm. And it's the most easy thing to cook for a group of people. You can actually do everything while your guests are here. And you can do everything in the same room as them. Um, and then you're eating in unison, um, taking turns, say, with the fondue pot. Um, so actually, I've really come to think it's a wonderful way of eating. It's a, it's a it wonderful very, dish. It sounds very convivial, basically, yeah. Yes. And that yeah. lovely thing of, of sharing, yeah, and having the fun of actually doing something as well and being... Exactly. Being and it's slightly scary because, you know, you're doing a fondue. Is it going to work out okay? You know, you're, you're stirring the wine into the grated cheese. Is it going to come together? And occasionally it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And then it does. <laughs> yeah, good. Magic. So, and what about other... Other ways of would cheese be eaten? Is it eaten for breakfast or is it eaten, you know, as, as sort of after after dinner with cheese board style? Would that is it? Is that is it? Yeah, enjoyed. Yes, definitely. They they actually make a specific breakfast cheese um, which has a higher fat content, and they eat quite young. Mm-hmm. Uh, although that's slightly changing as time goes on. Um, they'll eat a lot of cheese boards where cheese is cut into batons alongside dried meat. That's very oh. common. Every restaurant would have that. Well, that's interesting. Um, and things like rosti, which is a potato, a grated potato pancake, that's eaten regularly and that has uh, cheese on top melted as well. So, I mean, it, is, it isn't a cliche. They, do, they are actually eating cheese all the time. And you are, we're talking to you, I didn't say, but you are in Switzerland, aren't you, Rachel? So. Yes, I'm in Zurich yeah. currently. Yeah, so so I, I hope I'm, I'm speaking correctly about my 
fellow Swiss people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's um, you've made me hungry. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's interesting, it's summer here. So I, I think perhaps I can sort of live for a little bit longer. I think I tend to think of raclette more as sort of, you know, a comforting, you know, cold weather food. But is that... It, it, is, it, is, it is a cold weather food, but they eat it in the summer as well. Um, there we go. I'm now yeah. used to setting the grill up outside on the balcony and eating it in summer. Um, Lovely. There we go. It's never. It's always a good time for a collet, basically. So, exactly. well, Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your your insights and knowledge. It was much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Online on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savor the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, Peter'sYard.com and specialist food retailers. I'm a huge fan of Honey & Co and Honey & Smoke, the wonderful restaurants in London that are set up and cooked at by by Itamar Shrilovich and his wife Sarit Packer. Itamar, good morning. Morning, it's so good to talk to you, Jenny. Well, it's just really lovely to have you on the show. You know, I I do love your food and I couldn't really think of a better person to talk to you about cheese in Middle Eastern cuisine. Well, I think you think you might regret that because I can talk about cheese a lot. It's one of my favorite (laughs) subjects. Aha. Well, that's perfect. (laughs) So um, it is a food that people do love, isn't it? And I was really interested, Itima. I know it's very broad brush to even say something like cheese in Middle Eastern cuisine, but I was wondering if there were, I'm guessing that I would have thought goats and sheep's cheeses, are they were those the cheeses that were sort of historically important in Middle Eastern cuisine? I think uh, again, uh, it's it's very broad and saying Middle East is is kind of like you know it's almost a continent, <laughs> so it's it's really hard to kind of narrow it down. You you get everything. You get you know cow milk, buffalo milk, uh, sheep and goat definitely. Um, so it's it's a mixed bag throughout the region. Right. Yeah. And are there styles of cheese making that you you know is it sort of soft fresh cheese or, or are they more mature cheeses or, or, or again is this a real variety yeah well there there again there is a variety and there is kind of so many different things but i would say the vast majority of the things that i encounter or at least what i associate with with cheese in the middle east is the very kind of uh fresh white very milky sort of cheeses as opposed to the aged or the you know washed rind cheeses that you see in Europe and in colder climes I think you know if you think about things like uh, Labne which is very prevalent throughout the Levant which is uh, actually made with with dried reconstituted yogurt very often or if you think about things like uh, feta or halloumi or Lebanese drink cheese they're all kind of very, you know, white, milky tasting cheese. They're not not very aged. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know the science behind it, but I'm guessing it's to do with the heat. Yes, isn't that interesting? And I was thinking, you know, and obviously, you know, you're a wonderful chef. I, I love your food. I think Thank you so much. <laughs> perhaps and one of the dishes which I love, and it's so good. I still remember the first time I ate it in, in, in Honey & Co. It's, your, um, it's very iconic. I think it's one of your, perhaps one of your best known dishes, your, your feta and honey cheesecake. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And tell us about that, because that seems like a really interesting bit of playing that you've done with using, you know, Middle Eastern ingredients and then putting them together in a really interesting way. 
Tell me what was well, about that. Uh, I hope you're using the the plural you, which even then, you know, it's me taking undeserved credit because it's all my wife. You know, she's the she's in charge of the sweets and you know so much else. So credit where it is due. But this uh, cheesecake of ours, it kind of. Um, you know, it is, it's not uh, anything that we've tried before, but it just draws on so many Middle Eastern traditions. So it's ha- it has a Kadaif pastry base, which is, you know, the, the pastry that you use in baklava. Mm-hmm. And the, the cheesecake itself is actually um, whipped cheesecake. It's not baked at all. Mm-hmm. And it's made with uh, feta mostly, very smooth feta or actually we're we're using um uh because feta is dop so we're using uh what's called a a middle eastern salad cheese it's called but it's so (laughs) delicious yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. but it's it's uh it's like feta but smoother and a lot more creamier so it works Uh really really well for dessert and we just whip it with loads of uh honey, vanilla, a little bit of cream, a little bit of sugar. And that's pretty much it. But w- what happens is it kind of feels like a lot of uh, Middle Eastern cheese desserts that you see, the things like uh, knafe, like salura, because it has that kind of salty, sweet, very kind of rich element to it, which works really, really well. Yes, that's right. I, and I think it says modrum, fresh modrum. Is that right? And um, which gives it a lovely sort of slightly, slightly, slightly sort of TCP note, I think. And But it just really works with that. Uh, yeah. It lifts it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, yes, it's, it, it's when I've made it for dinner parties and everyone loves it, you know, and I think it just yeah. it's got that really rounded uh, sort of proper dish, you know, because every bit of it comes together. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you have like a, a little teaspoon with all the ingredients, then it really, really works. Yeah, and um, I thought the, the use of feta was so clever because that salty sweet thing, which I very much love, which is very much part of yeah. sort of Southeast Asian, you know, I just, I'm always drawn to that actually. Uh, so, yeah. And what about cooking cheese, you know, cooking with cheese in, in a savoury way? I was looking through your lovely new cookbook, Chasing Smoke, and of course I was yeah. looking at the cheese recipes, and I saw a very interesting recipe, uh, manuri wrapped in fig leaves. Um, tell, in fact, tell us what manuri is and then tell us about how this, how you like to cook with it. So, so manuri, maybe a lot of us know halloumi cheese, which is kind of like uh, has this quality that you can cook it and it keeps its shape. It doesn't melt. Uh-huh. Uh, so manuri does the same thing, but it doesn't have that squeak. So when you heat it up, when you come to cook it, it does get that crust like halloumi does, mm-hmm. but the inside becomes almost custody. Oh, lovely. I love that. It is yeah. really, really nice. So wrapping it... You know, this is actually is traditional. For for this book, we were traveling a lot uh, in the in southern Turkey and Greece as well. We were in Jordan and and in Israel and in Egypt and especially around the Balkans, the, the Turkish and Greek part of the you know Eastern Mediterranean, uh, using vine leaves or fig leaves or uh, mulberry leaves mm. to flavor cheese and preserve it is really prevalent. So these kind of flavors, we really, really wanted to keep. And there's actually so much flavor in those leaves that really brings a special something. I'm so interested you said mulberry. I've actually got a mulberry tree in my garden. Mm, lucky you. About using, yeah, I planted because I love mulberries so much. I spent years trying to spot them in, in parks and then, you know, and... Oh, Did you know what? Uh, we, we, we went for a walk yesterday and we just uh, clocked a tree 
of mulberries <laughs> that was just, you know, starting to have fruit. And we're like, we're coming back here in a couple of weeks. Yes. Yeah, It's exactly. so hard to find. Yes. Yeah, no, they've, and then once you've got your eye in, it's quite, and I've trained up my son, it was quite funny. And, um, but this sort of is a bit of a distraction from cheese. But basically, well, I was, I was thinking about the mulberry leaves and thinking, oh, I wonder if you can use them cooking. And now I know from you, Itamar, that this is it. So I must get hold of some manuri and wrap a mulberry leaf around it. And that'll be. Another, another thing that's beautiful for mulberry leaf, and uh, this is from uh, Katie's book, La Grotta, that she infuses it in cream. And then uses the cream to make an ice cream. Oh, beautiful. She, her ice creams are so wonderful. So, so good. She is so wonderful as well. She agree, agree. So, and what, tell me, Itama, what are other ways that you like cooking with cheese? As a chef, do you find, you know, in your restaurants, are, are there some dishes that you've really enjoyed putting together that, that feature cheese? Or I mean, it's often a filling, isn't it? In, in, it's often used as a, as a mix with vegetables, I suppose, and put in to give texture. Yeah. I love using cheese almost as a seasoning. Because it, you know, it, you get you get all the flavor and not uh, none of the heaviness. So, for example, if we do our fatouche salad, which has all kinds of beautiful tomatoes, fresh zata leaves, uh, crispy bread, and we have a little, uh, we do a very simple dressing of uh, vinegar and olive oil, a little bit of garlic, and then we break crumbs of feta. And this is not, you know, salad style cheese or whatever it's called, but real DOP feta. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we crumble it into the dressing and just kind of bash it up a little bit ah. to mix it, to kind of thicken the dressing. And it gives this kind of richness and savoriness to the dressing that it's not cheesy, but it's just kind of like a, something, kind of a background richness, which I love. And likewise, with, with more mature cheese, you know, there's um, Kashkaval is a Turkish uh, sheep's cheese, like Pecorino, which we use again in the same way to dress uh, artichoke salad that we cook in olive oil. And that gives it, again, a, a kind of a salty, savory, nice little back hit that is wonderful. So this is, you know, I, lo I love to sit in front of like a big cheese pie. I love like the cheesy stuff, but I also love that it's kind of like a background thing and enriches other things without taking center stage. How, how interesting. I'd, I'd never thought of using cheese as a seasoning for dressing, but actually it makes a lot of sense because there's so mm. much flavor concentrated in there, isn't there? Yeah, 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 yeah. When you, especially when you use, uh, you know, fresh raw vegetables or just lightly cooked vegetables that are very kind of zingy in flavor, but you want to give them a little bit of heft and a little bit of body. Cheese is your friend. <laughs> cheese is your friend. Cheese is your, that is my motto, actually, basically. And I was thinking about these travels you did for the book for Chasing Smoke. Did you have, did you encounter some cheeses? Because cheese is so interesting, isn't it? Because often it's so local, you know, that yeah. you know, people always say, oh, you're in London, you get everything. I'm like, you can't. I mean, I know what they mean. Yeah. Because a lot of food does come to London, but, you know, but equally lots of things don't and perhaps they just can't, especially if it's yeah. fresh, you know, fresh cheese. Did you have some lovely sort of fresh cheese encounters on your journeys? I had a horrible fresh cheese encounter. Do you want to hear about that? I do, yeah. <laughs> it was really yeah. traumatic. We were in Alexandria, and, and the food in the foods in Alexandria is, is fantastic, and it's a fantastic town. It's just amazing energy, and so alive, and so you know breathtaking. And and they do beautiful food, especially seafood, especially on the grill. But we've they have this cheese, which is kind of like how what's the equivalent? It's maybe like a very thin labne that's kind of yellow orange in color. And it's very, very high. And that was rank. That was like bitter <laughs> and and stinky and spicy and just 
the one thing that I didn't like in all our travel was this cheese. So this oh. is... Did I bum you out? Yes. No, no, no. Okay, now you need to end on a, on a positive cheese note. So now you have to tell me of a, of a wonderful cheese encounter that you had that was, that was satisfying or intriguing. Okay, I'll tell you, outside of uh, Thessaloniki, uh, we were in a young chef's uh, restaurant that he did, and he was grilling us this cheese that his father-in-law is making, which is, again, like feta, but isn't quite feta. And he was just putting it on the grill, drizzled it with local honey and sesame seed and served us some apricots on the side. And that was just sublime. That was the absolute best thing. That sounds very beautiful. I mean, and gosh, it good was. apricots when you, yeah, how lovely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because often simple, you know, simple food to be good, you have to have really good ingredients for it to really shine yeah. and mm-hmm. it's a joy. Well, that is, is wonderful. Thank you, Itamar. It was a real, you, you know, it was just, it's such a pleasure to talk to you because... Um, Always a pleasure. A Always a pleasure to talk to you. Take care then. Thank you so much. You too, Dana. Thank you so much. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me today on A Slice of Cheese, Bronte Orel of Scandinavian Kitchen, who has been sort of importing and championing and sharing Scandinavian food through her her business and her wonderful cafe in the centre of London for years. Good morning, Bronte. Good morning. You know, Bronte, I realise I know really little about Scandinavian cheese. In fact, my, my ignorance is profound, basically. So I thought I would get you on so you can enlighten me about mm-hmm. about cheeses in Scandinavia and the different che- sort of, I don't know, some iconic Scandinavian cheeses and then how they're used. Yeah, well, I think the, the first thing to, to know about um, but the Nordics or, or Scandinavian and cheese is that we eat a lot of it. And people are often surprised at that. We're, we're major consumers of all kinds of dairy and especially cheese. I, I double checked my facts um, actually the other day and Denmark is actually, Danes are the biggest eaters of cheese in the whole world. Perfect. <laughs> so it's perfect having you on the show then. Yeah. So that is, isn't that interesting? Because I, I had no idea of that. So no. yeah. Fascinating. 28 kilos of cheese a year in Denmark. Sweden is a little bit further down. Finland is is, uh, up there with Norway as well as, as major cheese consumers. But yes... We, we eat a lot of cheese. <laughs> good, good, good. And are there sort of classic iconic cheeses that you could tell us about? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously every country have artisan cheeses, but if, if we look at um, Scandinavian cheeses just on a, on a broad level, let's look at Scandinavia, so Sweden, Norway and Denmark. So um, Sweden, I would say they, they have quite a lot of uh, harder cheeses, mm-hmm. um, a lot of aged cheeses. Uh, the most famous... And in my opinion, best cheese of the whole of Sweden is called Vesterbotten, Vesterbotten's Ost cheese. Mm-hmm. And it's, it can only be made in one place in Sweden, right up north, uh, in a place called Butresk. And it's a, an aged, hard, crumbly cheese. Um, it's a little bit like Pecorino, but it's, it's got almost, it tastes a little bit like um, crystals inside. It's, it's oh, lovely nice. and crumbly yeah. and sweet and salty at the same time. It's aged for a minimum of 18 months. Um, so, and super creamy and it is they call it the king of Swedish cheeses and I, and I think when we started importing Scandinavian cheeses th- this was quickly the one that won over the hearts of, of uh, people in the UK that's for sure it ah, is absolutely delicious 
Yeah, they say it can only be made in Butesk um, because of the minerals in the soil there. So the cows eat the grass and then produce the milk. And they've tried to make it in other places, but it just doesn't taste the same. So production is always within limitations because it is a small place. Um, right. Yeah, but definitely worth trying. So it's very special then. Would that be eaten as a sort of, um, you know, at a certain time, as sort of celebrations? Would it be part of celebratory meals? Yes, because it's a little bit more expensive so than your, mm. your everyday cheese. Um, so... You would eat it. We put it in actually. We put it in a in like a cheese tart, Vesterbottens quiche, or Vesterbottens uh, pie, as we call it. Uh, have that with crayfish parties or for Easter. Um, sometimes you add some, you know, uh, fresh mushrooms or you know um, things you have uh, forest in there in nature, and you can add that to to the the tarts. Um, we also just eat it on on its own, um, and often paired with cloudberry. Because oh, the beautiful. cloudberries. That's got oh, a lovely sort of tanginess to it, hasn't yeah. it? I mean, it's, yeah. Oh, that's a nice combination. Yeah. The reason I think cloudberry goes, uh, you know, is, is often used with it is because it's a, it's a berry that only grows uh, around the Arctic uh, circle, so high up north. And it's, it's got a very, very short uh, season, only about three weeks in August. Mm. And you can't Gosh. really cultivate them. So you have to know where to go. But um, yeah. they, they look a little bit like raspberries. They grow on stalks, uh, orange raspberries, and they break when you pick them. So often they're made into jam. So it, it, pair, and it ah. pairs quite well with this cheese. <laughs> I remember having a wonderful, I have had a cloudberry parfait um, in Sweden and it was just very lovingly made for me by my fr- um, my Swedish friend's mother who was just trying to give me every taste of Sweden she could <laughs> in a meal, you know, and it, it was absolutely delicious. I so wonder if we had that cheese as well, you know, it's the one that we, we wheel out when we want to impress. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about some other cheese. Let's, I'm yeah. enjoying this journey. Yes, where else yeah. are we going to go? Well, yeah. If you go to Norway, they have uh, a tradition of uh, an incredible uh, range of brown cheeses. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. I've heard of them, but I but tell me what they are. Remind they me. look a little bit like brown plasticine, which doesn't sound very appealing. <laughs> but so they're like blocks of very hard uh, brown cheese. Now the reason the cheese is brown is because the milk sugars have been allowed to boil, so mm. it caramelizes. It's often made with what well, traditionally it was made with just goat's milk, and uh, nowadays it's made with a mixture of cow's milk and goat's milk. But it still has that kind of goaty flavor, right. goat cheese flavor, but yeah. also caramel and sweetness. So it is a little bit like Marmite, the Marmite of Norway. You either absolutely love this kind of cheese or you can't eat it. <laughs> it's a yeah. little bit like that. And, and that does sound intriguing. I think, yeah, I'm, I've got a feeling that's sort of stirring some dim memory and I may have tried it and not loved it. <laughs> so, but yeah. uh, I will try it again because it sounds really interesting. I wonder how that came about. I mean, obviously cheese is a way of preserving milk. And then yeah. it was their sort of taste for, for sweetness, do you think? I mean, Well, maybe, but I also think Norway was for many, many, many years very poor, extremely poor. And also, uh, not that much of the land. Is, you can't farm that much of the land. It's, it's a very big country with a lot of mountains. So mm. you have to sort of um, have food that you can preserve through the very long winters as well that doesn't necessarily need you know, specific kind of storage facilities, etc., etc. I mean, right. th- this kind of cheese lasts for months. It is... You know, it's not a cheese that will that will uh, sort of change in flavour. It's not and, delicate and, flour. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to keep. Yeah, it's the sort of cheese that people buy in pandemics then, basically. You know, there was that massive yeah, move to hard yeah, cheese. Yeah. So. And I guess, yeah. you know, as with every culture, stuff that you that has been uh, used in generations and generations become ingrained in your culture and becomes part of your heritage. I mean, if you see 
adverts for Norway and Norwegian food, this will always feature as, as one of the main things that, they, that right. they have. It's really special. They serve it on waffles uh, or in sandwiches. Mm -hmm. um, I actually use it at home. Um, I, I use it for mac and cheese. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I put like about a third of brown cheese in because it has a really lovely umami flavor as well. It gives, you know, and, and I don't, I use the one that's half goats, half cow's milk, so it's not too goaty. And I think yeah. it gives it real depth. And what do you, what other cheeses do you put with that thing? Because you're balancing it, presumably. I, do, I would use just a normal cheddar. Right. So okay. like when you make a normal mac and cheese, I probably could put a nice a nice cheddar in for a good bite and then a bit of brown cheese if I have it. I yeah, also sometimes use it to add a little bit of oomph to gravies if I have some extra crumbs left over of brown cheese. That's so interesting, that umami, you know, you just mentioned. I mean, yes, mm -hmm. that's that sort of savouriness that cheese can bring to dishes is pretty wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. So let's move on. Where, where to next? Yes, so Denmark, we, um, one of the biggest cheeses, I mean, we have lots and lots of different cheeses in Denmark. As I said, 28 kilos per person per year. It's quite <laughs> a significant amount of cheese. One of the biggest ones is we call it uh, Danbo. Uh, it's got PDO status and it's aged um, anything from 12 to 52 weeks. And mm. it's like a semi-soft cheese, a little bit softer than Edam. So you need a, a string slicer for it. You can't do it with a normal uh, cheese planer. Um, and some of the stronger varieties of these are flavored with whole caraway seeds. We uh -huh. tend to use a lot of caraway seeds in our cheese in Denmark. It seems to be a, a really um, common flavor for cheese. Mm. Um, my grandfather was actually a famous cheesemaker in Denmark. And he, made, he was famous for making a Danish smoked cheese. Uh, which is very different to the Danbo. It's a, it's a very young cheese, about 48 hours. And yeah. it's then smoked over uh, dried nettles and hay, a mixture of dried nettles and hay, and then topped with caraway seeds as soon as it comes out uh, and is turned away from the smoke. Wow. Do you remember so, yeah. eating that then? I remember making it with him, actually. Oh, it was how lovely. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I also remember the smell of, you know, the smoke from hay and nettles. It's quite a distinct smell. And, and the, the smell of the fresh very young cheese as it's very carefully turned out of the cheesecloth and onto almost like a pizza paddle uh, but with with a great sin and you stick it in over the flames you know over for, over the smoke just mm. for about 60 seconds and then you turn it and it's got these beautiful brown smoky stripes all over it and then you put loads of caraway on top and uh, yeah, you eat it with rye bread i have never seen this cheese outside of denmark not even sweden and norway never right Gosh, how so interesting. Yeah, I have the recipe. I should make it, really. Yeah, <laughs> I should give it a go. It sounds, I'll come, yeah. when you do, let me know, and I'll come and try some. So. <laughs> yeah, just need I'll... a garden with a room for a big smoker. But I think that should be, I should be able to do that. I have, you know, yeah. it's, it's a... so, you know, fresh cheese is one of the more makeable things for a home cook. You know, it's yeah. possible to make fresh cheeses. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. How lovely is that it? you've got that a cheese connection. I had no idea, Bronte. So that's a really oh, did you not? No, lovely thing. Up, no. Yeah. 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 Grew up with cheese. And actually for a few years, I didn't actually want to eat cheese. But <laughs> there was a lot of cheese in our house growing up. Um, the funny thing is about when you think about Scandinavians and their massive cheese consumption is that we don't really... We don't really have, I mean, of course, at high season, we'll have a cheese board, but cheese is featured pretty much at every meal from breakfast and lunch and, and even snacks. We eat oh. a lot of crisp bread, we eat a lot of crackers and stuff like that. And there's always cheese in the fridge, but we buy cheese in very large quantities because we eat so much. So you will all, when you open a Scandinavian fridge, you usually find one big cheese. We usually buy it in at least half kilo blocks, wow. sometimes kilo blocks. 
So you always find an open cheese with a cheese slicer carefully positioned on top, you know, huh. and and ready to to slice and put on the table. It's when you finish dinner or breakfast or lunch, you might just have an extra little piece of crisp bread with a slice of cheese on top. It's always on the table. Wonderful. And are there um, condiments that you would... Because one of the things we talked about in this programme was what goes with cheese. Um, yeah. Are there sort of particular pairings that, that you that you are fond of or that, that are classic? In Denmark, for breakfast, you will always have a slice of rye bread with a slice of Danbo cheese. Depending on the strength you like, you can go for the younger one or the older one. The older one really stinks. My dad loves it. I go for the younger <laughs> one. And you will put jam on top, strawberry jam. And I'm not uh, sure if people here do that to that extent. No, that is so interesting because actually jam, you know, that pairing of sweetness, sweetness with cheese does work really well. But it's funny, we don't tend to think of jam and cheese in Britain. But I think there's quite a strong case to be made for it. So I, I shall have to investigate that. I mean, Yeah, and whether it's raspberry jam or strawberry jam, even with when you have the brown cheese in Norway on your waffles, you'll put jam on top of that as well. And right. in Sweden, you, you will have jam, cheese and jam, or obviously not just the cloudberry jam, but whatever you have, you know, yeah. uh, that will go with a particular cheese. Cheese and jam is a very common combination across oh, Scandinavia. interesting. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah, and, what, and what, what other... And I was thinking I was thinking of lingonberries, I think, in a very cliched way. Is that, is that are they used to... Are they paired with, um, with cheese and Scandinavia? You can, but it's mainly... Lingonberry is mainly used for meat dishes. So right. So we wouldn't often used it use it on toast or anything like that lingonberry is mainly like you'd use cranberry over here yeah um yeah but to cloudberry bilberry so that bilberries wild blueberries um because they're the kind of blueberries we have and strawberries obviously we have an abundance of berries so it, it's only natural that we we use them <laughs> yes you've got these beautiful wild strawberries i just remember leaping I remember spotting some in sweden leaping up a bank and chris my husband just roaring with laughter because he just never see me so galvanised into action. But it's like wild and stories. They're amazing, they're amazing yeah. and they're everywhere. And and I had some at a restaurant in London this week and I was like, I said to the waiter, tell me where did you get these? And he's like, from somewhere in somewhere in the south of France on a mountain. I'm like, okay, they're not Swedish. But, you know, the, the longing for going smultron uh, hunting in Sweden is strong, especially mm. after lockdown. We haven't been there for two years, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yes, there must be many things. You're such a beautiful place. Yeah. Mm. And what about cooking with cheese? Bond? Just one, uh, we talked about eating. Is, is it, are there dishes that um, cheese in Scandinavia, you know, there are so iconic Scandinavian dishes that feature cheese? Well, I think if you go to Sweden, you will find a lot of dishes using these hard cheeses that they favour a lot. I think less so in Norway and less so in Denmark, but because in Denmark, it's a lot about open sandwiches, you know, but in Sweden, I think you, you'll find salads using these cheeses. You'll find, as I mentioned before, the Vesterbottens uh, tart. Things like when you when you have the uh, chanterelle season, you know, you might put some of the some some delicious local hard cheeses in there as well to bring out the flavour in, in there. So from that sense, I would I would say that cooking with cheese is definitely a massive thing in Sweden. And in your lovely cafe in London, and, and you've obviously got an online shop as well, do you, is, is there, is cheese really popular among your customers? Which I'm guess, guessing features quite a few expatriate uh, yes. in Scandinavians. Yes, I mean, we sell a lot of cheese, and both from the really strong cheese to the really mild cheese. Um, we have the, one of the most popular cheeses is, is called Hushalsost, and it's Swedish, and it comes in a one kilo block. And it is a mild cheese and it's very sliceable. And it's one of those cheeses that you will have in your fridge, you know, at all times, yeah. just with a bit, bit of uh, 
a cover on and just take it out three times a day and, and, and eat from it. Uh, Hushalsost actually means household cheese. Ah, uh, nice. But it actually is a, a dock uh, protected cheese. It's very delicious, very mild. And that yeah, would be that popular with your customers, is it? Yeah, that and Vesterbottensost cheese. Wonderful. Yes. Probably that's so fascinating. Thank you. I've learnt a huge amount and I'm now going to go and try. I shall be coming to Scandinavian yes, kitchen and, and buying some cheese. Yes. And trying some of these. Yeah. I think I feel I must try brand cheese again and give it a go. So uh, brilliant. It was lovely to talk to you. Take care, Bronte. Bye. Thank you. Bye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.